Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence by the Ohio Board of Regents in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, a brand-new facility completed in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in the new building. Read more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today, we're talking with Dr. Stephen Gold, professor in the College of Psychology at Nova Southern University. And he's also the director and founder of the Trauma Resolution and Integration Program. His expertise is in the area of psychological trauma and the impact on its victims. We're also talking with Christopher Anderson. He's the executive director of Male Survivor, a major national organization that provides assistance to male survivors of sexual abuse. We're talking about why people in power often act out in destructive sexual ways. Well, Anthony Weiner's problem and problems, they were the trigger for, for this conversation. But I want to make it very clear that we're not diagnosing any particular person. Instead, what we're looking at are patterns of sexual activity and sexual acting out and the reasons behind it. And especially the linkage between power and famous people and that kind of acting out. We're going to look at the question, why do powerful and, and famous people act out often in sexual ways that most people find inappropriate? And some may even say or that the acting out is self-destructive. So what might be some of the reasons? And if we look back in, in our history, to FDR and JFK and LBJ and Senator Gary Hart and President Bill Clinton and Senator John Edwards and, and Tiger Woods and Anthony Weiner and Congressman Anthony Weiner and, and many others I'm sure I've left out, uh, there seems to be a pattern and a linkage between people in power or people who are famous and this kind of behavior. Um, Dr. Gold, uh, is there a linkage or am I just making that up? Well, I don't know that we have research that supports that. Certainly there's a lot of examples of that that go back decades now of uh, politicians, famous figures. Um, maybe it's because they're overrepresented, but I think we're talking about primarily uh, men in power um, who abuse that power sexually and it may just be a larger pattern that's probably not gender specific that along with power often comes the opportunity 
to abuse power and maybe not even uh, recognizing that power is being abused. What do you what do you mean by that? Explain that well, a little bit to me. I, I mean that for folks who are in power and privileged in many ways, they may not even be aware that they're abusing their power. There may be a sense of entitlement or that this is just the way it is. Um, If you think in terms of gender roles, back in the mid-20th century in the United States, uh, there was an abuse of power among men that was part and parcel of the the fabric of society. I don't know that it was widely recognized. The second feminist movement in the 70s brought that that to our attention. Um, But I can actually remember being told uh, in my training that women, for example, who were in relationships where they were being battered and just recognizing that that occurred at the time was new obviously enjoyed being battered because otherwise they would leave so it was it was woven into the fabric of our culture that men had power that that was just the way it was that there was something wrong or askew uh, if women had power in certain areas and that there was an entitlement simply by virtue of being a man of having that power Does this kind of behavior, is there a linkage between people that we might say are overachievers, people who uh, try to get attention through either political forums or or other ways, and this kind of behavior? It seems that they run parallel to each other, to a layperson like me. Well, let's say they're high achievers. Okay. <laughs> Saying they're overachievers. That, you know, that's somebody, fair. That's fair. Right? Somebody has to be in these positions, at least the way our society is currently structured. We feel we need a pyramid with, with somebody or a few people at the top. Um, but I think often there's a conviction among people who are at the top that they earned that place at or near the top, and that therefore there are certain entitlements that come with the efforts that they put into getting to the top. Um, I think people who who end up high in the power structure, sometimes uh, it's not entirely through their effort that they got there, but but they tend to believe that it's entirely through their effort that they, that they got there, and it had nothing to do with opportunity, with good fortune, with luck, uh, with who they knew. And so there's a feeling of, I got here because of my own merits and because I worked so hard, and therefore there are certain things uh, that I'm entitled to because I worked so hard to get here. So if if we go back, uh, you're a professor of psychology, uh, we go back... Is there a linkage between any disorders and this kind of behavior? Uh, I've read in the current popular press uh, the term narcissism as it relates to people in power and this kind of privilege that you're talking about. Can you talk about that a bit? 
Well, we certainly don't want to assume that anyone who engages in this general kind of behavior has a narcissistic personality disorder, but we can talk in the opposite direction. People with a narcissistic personality disorder, part and parcel of that pattern of behavior is an assumption of entitlement and an assumption that they uh, should have or have a right to have things that other people don't, whether it's material things or privileges or leverage or deference, um, that's woven into their perceptions and how they see things, and it's simply taken as a given. This is just the way it is. I deserve things that other people don't necessarily deserve. So they wouldn't even think about it in the same way that uh, perhaps the average person would who doesn't have those kinds of tendencies, uh, thinking that this is aberrant behavior. They would think that this just goes along with uh, the title or the power or whatever they've attained. Right. In the same way that a fish probably doesn't spend a lot of time thinking that it's surrounded by water and probably doesn't even notice it, it's just the way it is. Now, you do uh, abuse counseling, I know, uh, from longtime sexual abuse. Chris, you're involved uh, in male survivor and, and sexual abuse. Uh, do you see this kind of personality in abusers? Steve, do you want to take that first? Um, I was going to ask if you wanted to take that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that it's important to really highlight, you know, when we talk about abusers specifically, you know, one of the things that I was going to bring up is to expand a little bit on something that Steve said. I think it's helpful to actually look at the the overlay of, of gender roles here and we actually see when we look at it not just through a gendered lens but look at it through that structure of people who are in positions of power and authority you know we do actually see a lot of examples of abusive uh, behavior uh, specifically within you know one of the issues that you and I have talked about Tom and that we see quite often coming up are for instance uh, adolescent males talking about teachers uh, who uh, engage in sexually abusive acts um, and we see I think other circumstances where there definitely are people who have attained you know positions of control power authority influence who uh, are not as cognizant uh, to, you know, as Steve was just talking about, sort of maybe they are a little bit like the fish swimming in the water who, who don't, you know, appreciate or, or just are blind to some of the impacts of the decisions that they make and the ways that they treat people. Um, so I do think that we do see uh, these kinds of behaviors often manifested within, you know, uh, abusers, or we see, we hear that reported very often from those who who have come into contact with abusers. Um, that said, I 
I would defer to Steve a little bit more in terms of actual personality types of abusers themselves because our experience at male survivor really is much more from the the survivor perspective and, and speaking to what are the types of you know personality traits and behaviors that that we see across uh, many different people's experiences dr gold you know I'm it may be misleading to think in terms of disorders and and personality types um, it might simply be part of the human condition that there is a vulnerability or a risk when someone is in power that they can abuse that power and not realize it. So we were talking about a moment ago the extreme situation of someone who is in a, a high position of authority politically, but as Chris just mentioned, a, a teacher by virtue of authority and, and usually being older than the students has power over the students that they may not realize. Um, I remember having discussions in graduate school about do therapists have power over their clients and the answer in hindsight seems to obviously be yes in, in that uh, their clients are relying on them to help them in difficult circumstances and certainly there are times when therapists abuse that power so diagnoses aside personalities aside I think there's there's some risk when someone has power and especially if they don't recognize that they have power and don't recognize the implications of that power that they can abuse that power without even realizing they're doing it. There is certainly, I'm sure, among some teachers who engage in sexual relationships with students, a belief that, they're on, that the student is purely on a volitional basis choosing to enter into that relationship with them, not recognizing the power differential and not recognizing how that plays into the situation. Let, let's move over, if we could, to uh, a topic that, uh, that I don't think people understand, and, and perhaps it's part and parcel of what you, both of you have been talking about, and that is the repetitive nature uh, of this. People who uh, have been caught and turn around and do it again, uh, whatever the, the aberrant perhaps sexual behavior is that they keep doing again and again and again, regardless of the risk. Talk about how compulsion or addiction or those terms weave into this if they do. You know, I think that there's, you know, an interesting uh, dynamic that you know, is helpful to think about when, when we have this kind of conversation because there's there's sort of competing perspectives. You know, we, we from the outside want to look at a uh, somebody who, who was doing questionable things like, like Anthony Weiner or Tiger Woods, um, you know, people who are in the public eye who are consistently, it seems, engaging in activities and behaviors that from the outside we would look at and go, well, clearly there's something, there's something 
pathological and or dumb being done because we look at it and judge it from our external perspective and clearly see the 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 dangers and the harms that occur but i think there's a different mindset potentially you know from from the inside that we don't really often have access to and we don't do a good enough job of trying to to explore and understand you know and that's not to provide an out or an excuse it's merely to say that you know it's it's difficult for us from the outside to look at and diagnose you know what the root causes and, and issues are you know i think one of the things that can happen and this is something that you know dr gold just said and it popped into my head we talk about you know the the fish swimming and not being aware of the water there's also i think with some people who may engage in these kinds of behaviors a lack of awareness that they are empowered or or even have a position of power because they don't see themselves that way they their own personal frame of reference you know maybe because of the circumstances they came up in or for whatever reasons they can't see themselves as somebody who actually possesses power so it makes it very very difficult for them to perceive what it is how it is their behaviors impact other people because they're so sort of focused on themselves um not necessarily in that clinically narcissistic way but just you know in a sense of i they don't understand or comprehend the role and the way in which they impact other people and i think that may be one of the things that can sometimes lead to what from an external perspective can look like compulsive behaviors or pathological behaviors um steve dr gold i'd be interested to hear any you know your thoughts on that well you had asked before about our abusers like this do abusers have this diagnosis and i think it's important to recognize that not all abusers are the same and not all abusive sure. patterns of behavior are the same sure there there are people who for example in, engage on a one time basis in sexual molestation of children which seems to be a reaction to being under intense stress. That doesn't mean being under intense stress is an excuse to engage in that behavior. So there are people who seem to be doing this kind of behavior again and again and again and appear not to, to have difficulty resisting the, the pull to engage in that behavior. And then there are other people who are not doing these things on an ongoing basis there, there are people who uh, have a preference for having sex with children as opposed to having sex with someone in, in their own age group. And um, there are people who engage in this behavior for reasons that are much more about power than about sexual gratification. So we do know that there are different uh, types of abusers, different motivations for abuse and different patterns of abuse. Um, but the question does come up for people who continue to engage in this behavior and seem, uh, despite awful consequences, to have difficulty resisting engaging in this behavior. Um, and certainly one of the things that I work with is, is people who have difficulties that are referred to as sexual addiction. And in general, if you think of addiction as continuing to do something, even though it has awful consequences, which would describe someone with an alcohol 
addiction or a substance abuse addiction or other kinds of addiction, that pattern of behavior does seem to fit the definition of addiction. I think where that becomes a concern is where people see that as an excuse, either legally or morally, that puzzles me a bit because we don't say, well, you were driving and you plowed into a bunch of people and killed them, but since you have an alcohol addiction, we're not going to hold you legally responsible. Right. Um, an addiction is, is not seen as either a legal or a moral excuse for the behavior you engage in as a result of that addiction. So from my perspective, there are people um, who have addictive patterns of behavior revolving around sex. That doesn't excuse them from the consequences of that behavior. But that might explain in some circumstances why someone would continue that behavior regardless of the consequences, correct? Well, it would only in the sense that it's a description, not really an explanation. If we accept that one way of defining addictive behavior is continuing to do something even though it has serious negative consequences, that kind of classifies that pattern of behavior. It doesn't explain why someone would continue to do something despite the negative consequences. I think we need to be careful about making a distinction between a description and an explanation. And, you know, to, and just to tag on to that, yeah, briefly, Chris. you know, one of the reasons why I think it's so important, you know, is we want to ideally, if, if we really care about understanding and improving the quality of life for, for people, you know, in general, it's helpful to find ways to look at these, these behaviors, not strictly in just maybe a, a, a pathological perspective, uh, you know, we want to actually you know, find ways to understand, you know, what's happening and differentiate between one type of, you know, person who's perpetrating this kind of harmful activity and, and another, because that's going to distinguish the, the response and the support that we try to offer people. It's challenging, you know, again, that difference between the internal and external perspective, because I think we're, we are often led to, for, for a number of reasons, trying to oversimplify and, and put anybody who does a certain kind of you know activity into a single group and oftentimes we want to label people who do bad things with the worst labels Um, but that doesn't necessarily help us really come to uh, better understandings of the dynamics that are going on which is important because ultimately we want to have options we want to have ways that we can better address these issues you know if there is a person who's who's acting with you know compulsive tendencies and we understand you know what some of you know maybe there's biological or organic you know you know things that can be treated we want to deal with that you know if we want to find ways to not simply you know toss away somebody as a result of the fact that they've done something bad and you know and I I say this as a survivor advocate, you know, having been somebody on the receiving end of, of bad behavior. And, and it can be a little difficult sometimes to, to put that perspective out there because very oftentimes, you know, people want to look at the, the behavior of abusers with a very, you know, critical, judgmental eye that's aimed more towards punishment. And I don't necessarily think that that's always a perspective that, you know, brings us to the kind of outcomes that improve uh, 
improve the chances that there's going to be less abuse in the long run? Well, I think as a public, we look for simple answers or at least understandable answers. And from what I gather from my reading and, and talking to people, these are highly complex and highly individualized uh, relationships. Isn't that correct? Well, it is correct. And, and to follow up on what Chris was saying, I think many of us, when we're confronted with an actual situation of uh, abuse, there's a tendency either to want to condemn the abuser and leave it at that. And as Chris said, the problem with that is if we simply condemn the abuser, we're not looking at ways to reduce the likelihood that that person engages in that behavior again. If we try and understand what's going on, we, we are more likely to be able to identify ways to intervene so the behavior isn't repeated. So on one hand, there's a tendency among some people to condemn the abuser and to say, well, any attempt to understand what's going on is an attempt to excuse the behavior as opposed to it's an attempt to see if we can find ways to stop the behavior from continuing. And then there are other people who want to sympathize with and, and excuse the abuser, which is, I think, one of the reasons why we see judges levying minimal, minimal sentences, if, if any sentence at all, uh, in some instances of rape and, and molestation and, and so on, um, and say, well, you know, it, just, just to kind of explain it away and to point to the horrible consequences it would have on this person to be punitive towards them, when in other situations um, we may actually be eager to uh, apply punitive consequences to someone for other kinds of transgressions. So if we can get away from our own emotional reactions that may lead us to be tempted to simply condemn someone or simply excuse someone and understand better what's going on, we have more of a shot at stopping those patterns of behavior. And, and not just in the instance of a single perpetrator, you know, let's, you know, understanding that there's nothing ever new under the sun, the better we can understand the dynamics of, you know, perpetrators and, and abu uh, abuse victims and, and see those uh, dynamics in the full complexity that, you know, that they represent, it empowers us as a society um, to better identify these patterns of behavior when we see them manifested in others and come up with better alternatives, better options, better responses that can be protective and predictive, you know, in nature so that it, it isn't just about, you know, condemning one perpetrator uh, or, or absolving one perpetrator. It's about trying to understand the patterns of behavior that are going on here with an understanding of helping, our, helping more people in the long run. We'll be back after this short message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students that want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice 
and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to move over to uh, a related topic, and, and that is in your wheelhouse, Dr. Golden, and that's the role of trauma in all of this. Uh, I know you study psychological trauma in, in many of its aspects, also in relationship to adult su- survivors of prolonged child abuse, but other uh, trauma relationships as well. Talk, if you would, about the role of trauma for the victims of these acts, as well as the role of trauma on the perpetrator of these acts. Well, one of the things that's important for us to distinguish when we talk about trauma, because we use the same word trauma to refer to an event and to refer to the consequences of the event. So there are people who undergo a, a potentially traumatic event, and for, that's, for that reason, sometimes in the field we call them potentially traumatic events, uh, people who are in combat, uh, some of whom end up traumatized by the experience, but the vast majority of whom do not. Um, in most kinds of trauma, Uh, most people experiencing a particular kind of trauma are not going to be traumatized by that experience on a long-term basis. And one of the things that we're studying currently is how do we account for people who are traumatized by the very same event that may not traumatize someone else. But when someone is traumatized, um, a hallmark of that experience is this is one of the most awful things that the person has ever experienced and it it haunts them. Um, people who don't understand wonder why people are dwelling on awful experiences as if there's something self-indulgent about being immersed in a negative experience. But the fact is that the person doesn't want to be thinking about it doesn't want to be dwelling on it, doesn't want to be remembering it, and yet they can't shake it. And one example of that is that people who are traumatized not uncommonly have nightmares about the trauma. Obviously, nobody decides or chooses to have a nightmare. And in the same way, for many people who are traumatized during the day when they're not sleeping, they find that they're thinking about the awful things that happen to them when they don't want to be um, they may even feel like it's happening again. That's referred to as a traumatic flashback. Um, so the experience for someone who's traumatized continues to cast a shadow on their life, even though the trauma may have occurred decades earlier and has all kinds of consequences in terms of either the person being constantly anxious or overwrought or episodically anxious and overwrought, especially when they encounter situations that in one way or another 
um, are similar to the traumatic experience and therefore set off those memories or physiological reactions or emotions. And some people who are traumatized, perhaps before they realize the, the nature of the trauma, uh, self-medicate, correct? Yes. Um, really, the way that I came to specialize in trauma was in treating uh, on a consistent basis people who were in substance abuse recovery. And one of the things I was asked to do was to do a very full assessment on these folks. And the vast majority of the people that I worked with had an extremely traumatic childhood. Um, not only abuse, but often growing up in circumstances where their basic emotional needs weren't being attended to. Sometimes their basic needs for safety and protection or even their basic physical needs weren't being attended to. And many of them began abusing alcohol and drugs by the time they were 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I, I think because they were in so much distress that anything they could do to get away from that distress they were going to do just to be able to to get through the day and be able to bear it. Now, Chris, you see a lot of this, I, I know, in dealing with uh, male survivors, correct? Absolutely. You know, in speaking with other male survivors, uh, anecdotally, the, uh, the fact of the matter is very, very few of the folks in our community um, don't have, you know, some significant struggle with the aftermath of traumatic experiences. Uh, many, uh, myself included, uh, have uh, dealt with abuse, uh, excuse me, addiction issues. Um, we've dealt with challenges to maintain a sense of personal safety um, in the world, uh, which makes it very difficult to trust other people, which leads to uh, relationship challenges, uh, which creates, you know, a, a kind of a, a vicious cycle of dysfunction, dysregulation, leading to more attempts to self-medicate uh, in various ways. Uh, very oftentimes, those attempts at self-medication, you know, people don't have access or op, you know, to uh, evidence-based, um, clinically proven uh, methods uh, for reducing their perceived, uh, you know, experiences of distress. And we turn to, you know, what's immediately available to us. Oftentimes it's, you know, it's the bottle or maybe it's acting out compulsively to deal with sexual uh, uh, temptations and, and things that are deeply rooted in our experiences. But especially for males uh, who have gone through these, you know, who face these challenges, there's, there's almost a double bind in that, you know, yeah, we struggle with a lot of these things, but in some ways a lot of these behaviors are actually normalized. You know, we're, we're told it's okay to be hypersexual as men. We're told it's okay to be, to you know, to drink a couple extra beers or to go out and, and party. You know, and the act, and any attempt we might make to expose our vulnerabilities or, or talk about the relationship between the traumas that maybe we experienced earlier on, uh, you know, and uh, the the compulsion or the strong feelings to to soothe that we struggle with, we don't have a framework for talking about that with other guys or with with other people without being penalized in some way and having our masculinity challenged or questioned. So, 
it's a very, very common dynamic that we see and people who've worked with male survivors write about very consistently, but it's still one that we haven't been able to really, I think, openly discuss and talk about as a society. Dr. Gold, you've developed a, a type of therapy called contextual therapy. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, the term contextual refers to our observation in working with adult survivors of abuse that very often abuse doesn't occur in a vacuum and occurs in a very specific context, um, which relates back to the work that I did early in my career with substance abusers when I was hearing about the situations they grew up in. It's true that, that many of these folks uh, who I was seeing with substance abuse problems and began using substances at a ver very early age, many of them were verbally or sexually or physically abused. But beyond that, they were growing up in, an, in a family context, in an interpersonal context that did not provide for what a child needs growing up. Um, we're not born knowing how to navigate this very complex society that we live in as adults. We're not born knowing how to manage money, knowing how to identify and express our feelings, knowing how to establish and maintain uh, gratifying relationships with other people, how to get a job, hold on to a job. All of these things are things that we learn and we learn them primarily in a family environment, in a family context where there's attentiveness and guidance and care and love. Um, and these folks were not only being abused and, and not only by people within the family, but even for folks who are being abused outside the family, our research shows, they're often growing up in families that are not attending to the needs uh, that they have to grow up into knowledgeable, effective, well-functioning adults. So the focus of our approach is uh, understanding that we not only need to help people resolve the trauma that they've been through in childhood um, in the form of abuse and so on, but we have to help them uh, go through the developmental processes that they missed out on so that they develop all of these complex adult skills and that if we don't attend to the family context that they grew up in and how it failed to provide for them developmentally and don't help them remediate those gaps in their development, that resolving their trauma is not going to get them where they need to go in order to have a functional day-to-day -day adult life. And I know trauma, you're doing linking with some people to do research in that as well, Chris. Is that right? Uh, yes, we are working with, uh, we actually have a number of partnerships that we're working with, uh, both to uh, benefit the research and study of trauma, specifically uh, the sexual abuse that men uh, have endured, uh, but also to work uh, with folks like Steve um, to use this information and this knowledge base to better train the next generation of clinicians and researchers. So uh, one example of 
of the kinds of partnerships we've developed uh, is a study that's just about to get underway uh, with uh, Dr. Joan Cook, who uh, is on the faculty at Yale University, where we'll be uh, working with members of the male survivor community to inquire about their experiences with uh, you know, dealing, actually participating in research, uh, and also working with uh, what are some of their barriers to participating in help-seeking kinds of behaviors? What are some of the negative experiences they've had um, interacting with clinicians and researchers in the past? Because um, what we want to try and do is better understand, we know the data is clear that you know, men experience staggering levels of sexual abuse and other forms of trauma, not just in childhood, but all throughout the lifespan. But it's, it's a population and, and a set of experiences that still remains very much hidden from our view uh, from a research perspective. And, and uh, if it's hidden from view from the research side, then it's, we're not able to incorporate that understanding into developing better clinical uh, diagnoses and modalities and, and interactions uh, for uh, survivors. Um, and then an example of how we're trying to address and partner uh, to help improve the clinical side is the a resource we've called the Hope Healing and Support Team, where uh, we actually have uh, students who are in Dr. Gold's program at Nova Southeastern University beginning to answer emails that come into our website. And we provide his, some of his students with specific training on the dynamics and the unique characteristics and challenges that are presented by uh, male survivors of sexual abuse. So we're training people who already have some degree of knowledge in trauma psychology and clinical understanding and giving them some specialized training on some of the unique challenges our population faces in order to better prepare them for dealing with this when they go out into the world. Um, and if, regardless of whether they choose to, to work with male survivors as a specialty or not, you know, the statistics are pretty clear. They're going to run into survivors, um, especially if they're doing clinical work. So trying to, to use the community that we've developed over the past couple of decades to actively improve the quality of research and the quality of clinical training and care that's out there is, is a very strong priority for male survivor. Dr. Gold, where is the, the research going as far as circling back to where we started, the people in power that misuse that power to their advantage, and in most cases, sexual advantage. What research is being done? What new areas are being probed in, in that area? Actually, I wish there were a lot more research along those lines in general. When trauma, in some ways, is a very old field, um, the fact is that Freud and even some people before Freud who were early pioneers in developing therapy were focused on how a lot of the people that they were seeing who had psychological problems had those problems by virtue of having been through traumatic experiences. That knowledge slipped away by the early 20th century in many uh, regards and it was only uh, in the late 20th century that we kind of rediscovered trauma and that it became uh, a very productive field in terms of the research and the knowledge base and the clinical skills that we've developed um, in the last few decades. And yet, 
there are very few training programs that train psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, mental health professionals that provide a lot of that knowledge and those clinical skills uh, to their students. Um, when trauma first got back on the radar screen in the late 20th century, um, there were pioneers in the field who said trauma is inherently a political issue because if you look at the large swath of trauma that falls under the heading of interpersonal violence and interpersonal abuse, it's about an abuse of power. And who has power and who doesn't have power is a political issue. Obviously, I'm not just talking about people in political office. Sure, sure. Um, men having more power than women historically, uh, certain racial groups having more power than other racial groups and so on, um, makes it more likely that the people who are marginalized or lack power are going to be victimized and that the people who have more privilege and power, whether they realize it or not, are going to be abusing that power. Um, at, while we've been very productive in terms of research and theory and developing clinical skills, um, as a field, trauma is not as focused on the political implications of psychological trauma as I think we need to be and we should be. So unfortunately, I would say there, there really isn't enough research in this entire area of the intersection between political power and trauma that there needs to be. And I'm hoping um, in the next few years that we'll see a refocus on that. I've been an advocate both for bringing awareness of the political implications of trauma more squarely into the field. And certainly I've been an advocate for more widely disseminating um, knowledge and skills on trauma in the training of mental health professionals. The need is tremendous. Um, I'm a little surprised that Chris didn't mention when he said how widespread uh, sexual abuse is among men that the number, our best estimate is that one out of every six boys is sexually molested before the age of 18. Uh, our best estimate is that it's about one out of every four girls who are sexually molested before the age of 18. Recently, we've, we've seen figures in the news about how common rape is on college campuses. Uh, roughly one out of three women uh, is subjected to at least one instance of domestic violence in her lifetime. So there's a lot of people out there who've been uh, faced with trauma, who've been traumatized by those experiences, and yet, unfortunately, not that many therapists who have been adequately trained and how to identify and address the kinds of problems that come from uh, a history of trauma. Well, let me sort of jump in, Steve, and you know provide two observations to, to you know add, add to that as well. Um, and thank you for for pointing out the the shocking and necessary you know to bring to attention our attention statistics that we do have and i would also say that i think uh, oftentimes some of these statistics as shocking as they may be for some of your listeners tom to hear i honestly think a lot of these statistics are underreported in that you know the true prevalence we may never know but we know especially with male survivors that it's far less likely that boys will come forward and report uh contemporaneously and very i think there are a lot of situations where males simply don't even recognize until much later in life that maybe some of the things they've gone through were abusive experiences. I, I think one of the things that is true, though, even with the data that we do have, 
we're talking about you know negative experiences that have real impacts on the emotional and physical health of survivors that happen with prevalence rates far greater than some of the biggest public health issues that we we bring attention to right now you know the the level of these specific traumatic incidents of sexual abuse in childhood for instance is on par with some forms of cancer prevalence and heart disease and diabetes and even exceeds some of those numbers and that you know leads me to one of the th points that i think is important to stress this isn't just a psychological logical issue. I strongly believe, and part of the future of my own personal work, is to try and make the linkage between trauma and the public health sector. Because I believe there's a lot of a lot of the inability for us to address this as a society is because we haven't made that connection yet to, to the public health uh, side of things. One other point that I think is really critical to raise here is, you know, as Steve was, was talking so eloquently about the, the politics of, of trauma um, and the fact that, you know, we know so many marginalized populations experience trauma in so many ways. One of the things that I think that has unfortunately contributed to has been a kind of um, blindness uh, and in some cases unwillingness to look at the trauma of males. Um, and study the trauma of men and provide greater insight and understanding in, into uh, the ways in which trauma impacts men and potentially impacts the ways in which we interact with one another and, and with women. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of work that's been done to try and address what people see as um, the bad behaviors of men to sort of bring us back to you know, some of what we talked about at the start of this conversation. But oftentimes that's done through a lens of shaming and, and saying these, this is the kind of stuff that we can't tolerate. And I think that's, you know, those are important points to raise and I certainly don't disagree uh, with, with those efforts. But we also have to recognize that being a man itself is not a, it's not a shameful thing. And if we're trying to understand the sources of so much abuse and trauma in our society, I don't think it does us very much good to simply, you know, say, well, men are at the root cause of all of this bad stuff, or masculinity, or the patriarchy is somehow to blame. You know, there are a lot of people who honestly say, well, yeah, the patriarchy hurts men too, but we, as Steve just said, we're not doing the research that we need to do, and we're not providing the kinds of support and compassion uh, to male survivors of all forms of abuse and trauma that I think we need to. Gentlemen, I'm going to end it there. I want to thank both of you. I, I think you've added an intellectual component behind the headlines and uh, talked about this in depth. I think it's easy just to look at the headlines and, and make snap judgments, but uh, as, as usual, things are more complex than that. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tom. We've been talking with Dr. Stephen Gold, professor of psychology at Nova Southern University, and Christopher Anderson, executive director of Males Survivor. We've been talking about some of the psychological aspects of why powerful people often act out in destructive ways. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One.
If you would like to rate our podcasts or review them, please do so. If you have any questions or comments, you can direct them via email to hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 